Please remain standing and open up your Bibles now for our text this morning from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and you may be seated. When we read scripture... The first question we should ask is not what does it mean, but what it meant. What did the human author mean when he first wrote it, and how did the original audience in their context understand it? These types of questions are important because the Bible was written thousands of years ago, and so the customs and practices were in many ways different than ours Today, And we have to understand to some degree the way they understood it in order to have a fuller understanding of Scripture. Now, none of this is to deny that the message of Scripture is timeless and that it transcends any one age or culture. Its message is relevant to everyone in every location and Every generation. People's circumstances in different places and different ages may be somewhat different, but the Bible has one central message and it never changes. And so, if we understand what the human author meant when he wrote it, then we are better able to understand the universal truth that the primary author of Scripture, God Himself, intended to communicate, not only to them at that time, but also to us today. Certain circumstances between the original audience and us today may be different, but the basic message of Scripture will be the same in every place and every time. Now, I say all of this to you because in the ancient world, they sometimes handled judicial verdicts differently than we do today. And if we can understand their way of handling those judicial verdicts, then we will better understand Scripture when it discusses such things. For example, in the ancient world, sometimes a judicial verdict was handled by a trial by ordeal. It may have been a combat ordeal in which the judge would order, for example, a belt wrestling contest as a means to render a verdict. 
Both men were given a belt, and if the accused victoriously snatched the belt from the accuser, then he would be justified from that accusation. There were other types of trial by combat in the ancient world, such as two men dueling to the death. We might think of the verdict that God gave to Israel over the Philistines when David defeated Goliath. But beyond combat, there are other types of trial by ordeal. Oftentimes, judicial verdicts were rendered by the elements of fire and water. The Babylonians, for example, employed a judicial ordeal for accused people in which the person was thrown into a river. And if they drowned, then they were guilty. But if they escaped, then they were innocent. In Scripture, there was a trial by ordeal with a woman accused of adultery. In Numbers chapter 5, where she was made to drink bitter water, which would put a curse upon her if she was guilty, but would have no effect if she was innocent. The ancients also had trials by fire. And they were to walk across hot coals. The accused, that is, was to walk across hot coals or through fire to prove their innocence. Now, the ancients had judicial ordeals like these because they believed in the supernatural. They believed that the divine would come to the aid of the innocent, but would condemn the guilty through these trials by ordeal. Now, the pagans, of course, did this foolishly, believing in gods that do not exist. Whereas Israel relied on the one true and living God to render such judicial verdicts. Now, Meredith Klein has done some scholarly work on trials by ordeal, and he writes, The principle of trial by ordeal comes to expression in every judicial intervention of God in human history. The two common elemental forces, he says, that functioned as ordeal powers were water and fire. End quote. And what Klein puts forth here becomes very significant for our text this morning because Isaiah describes a trial ordeal by both water and fire. Now this is not how we today render judicial verdicts. But knowing this about the context in which scripture was written can help us to better understand the universal truth that our text discusses this morning. All right, so when we look at the context of the human author and the original audience for our text this morning, what we discover is that Isaiah's prophecy in this 43rd chapter occurs just prior to Israel's experience in the Babylonian exile. You see, long extended apostasy on Israel's part, would soon result in the Lord casting them out of the land of promise into exile to suffer the penalty of their sin. In this chapter, Isaiah chapter 43, 
Isaiah prophesies from the viewpoint of that exile, as if they are already in that exile. But at the time of his writing, judgment from God was coming. He would punish his people. He would punish Israel for their sins. But he would not entirely abandon his people. He makes future promises to his people in these two verses. And so those who found themselves in the middle of that exile would have this prophecy of hope from their gracious God in the midst of their trials in exile. This passage begins with the words, but now. See, those who would find themselves in exile could open Isaiah's scroll to this 43rd chapter and find comfort when they read the words, but now. You see, they would have been experiencing a metaphorical hell in exile. But now, the Lord says, fear not. Though they would have found themselves out of the promised land. Though other nations would be ruling over them. Though there would be dangers all around them. They could live fearlessly in the midst of these trials. Why? Because the God who is speaking to them is the God who created and formed them. As we see in verse 1. And that language there of created and formed is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 when God created all things from nothing. And so too was Israel created from nothing. This is a, a reference here to Israel's experience in Egypt when as a nation they were nothing more than slaves. They, they, they were nothing. They were nobody. Yet God graciously created and formed them into this great nation that they had become by Isaiah's day. Now in the second half of verse 1, we learn that they became this new creation when God redeemed them. And specifically redeemed them from Egypt and called them by name. You see, the Lord had called them out of their state of nothingness or out of their their state of deadness in Egypt. And he redeemed them and claimed them as his own prized possession. You are mine, Yahweh said. They were his supernatural creation. Therefore, When those who trusted in the Lord found themselves in exile, they were to fear not. The God who had worked those mighty deeds during the exodus was the same God who would speak these words of comfort to them during their exile. And therefore they needed not to fear in the midst of their trials. He who began a good work in them would bring that work to completion. 
And so the exhortation here is simply to fear not. And beloved, these words of comfort still apply to God's people today. If you are in Christ, then you are a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.7. And why is this? What makes you a new creation? Well, you are a new creation because God has called you out of the dominion of sin and Satan. He has redeemed you through Christ and claimed you as his prized possession. It's the same today as it was for God's people of old. And to be precise, so long as God's people dwell on this earth, we are always in a similar position to what Israel was in in this text. Being exiled, they were no longer in the promised land. Well, neither are we in the promised land. By that, I do not mean the land of Canaan, the area of Palestine today, but by which I mean the promised land of heaven. And this is why Peter calls new covenant believers elect exiles. And so as we sojourn as exiles in this world, the God who speaks such comforting words to us says, fear not. No matter what you are experiencing, no matter what trial comes upon you, even death itself, beloved, fear not. For he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. On the day of Christ's return, when he will bring us to be at home with him in the promised land of heaven. So then let your calling by God, beloved, and all of his subsequent graces to you be an assurance as you experience trials of various kinds. Now the promise of God in verse 2 is that he will be with you as you pass through these trials. The way Isaiah pictures these trials is through a watery and fiery ordeal. Again, the Lord looks back to the great redemption event in Egypt, but he does so in order to show Israel what it is going to be like when he redeems them from their future exile. So he, he sort of looks back to a past event to show him what it's going to be like in a future event when he comes to rescue them. In other words, Isaiah is prophesying that something like a second exodus will occur for his people, for the people of God. And this means that the exodus from Egypt was a paradigm event meant to illustrate what God would again do for them when they faced the trial of exile. Just as God was with Israel in the days of the Exodus, 
passing through the water and fire ordeal at the Red Sea, so too will he be with this future generation as they pass through their ordeal of exile. Yahweh's presence with them is referred to in several ways throughout Scripture. Uh, There in the book of Exodus, his presence is regarded as the pillar of cloud and fire. But later in this very book, Isaiah speaks metaphorically of the Exodus event. And he describes Yahweh as a warrior present with Israel, as a warrior fighting in the midst of the waters against a great sea monster. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 and 10, Isaiah speaks of the Lord stating, Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? You see, he's referring there to the exodus of Egypt and the passing through the Red Sea. And as we read this, we need the concept of a trial by combat in our minds. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are being described metaphorically as the satanic opposition called Rahab, which was a dragon. And the Lord himself is pictured as being in a combat ordeal with this dragon whom he slays by the piercing of a sword. And so he is no doubt present with his people through this trial. And we see that they, God's people, receive a favorable verdict in this trial. Precisely because he, God, is victorious in battle against the enemy. And so in our message this morning, when God promises to be with his people, to safely bring them through the water and fire, we can see that he is a God that can be trusted. He battles for his people so that they might have victory in him. Israel would have looked at this passage and said, yes, God is going to put us into exile among the nations, but he is also going to render a favorable verdict for us and condemn the nations just as he gave a favorable verdict to our forefathers in Egypt and condemned their enemies, the Egyptians. Now, As we first looked at this text, we may not have originally understood it in this way, but knowing the ancient context in which this passage was written helps us to see it in that light. Now, does the New Testament say anything about water and fire ordeals? Well, Paul calls Israel's passing through the water and fire ordeal at the Red Sea a baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he notes that the exodus took place as an example for us 
today in the new covenant. But how in the world is the crossing at the Red Sea an example for us sitting here so many thousands of years later? Well, God has provided redemption and a way of escape for us, just as he did for Israel at the Red Sea. That way of redemption and escape is found in none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself speaks of his trial on the cross as a water ordeal. Or more specifically, he refers to it as a baptismal ordeal. In Luke chapter 12, he referred to his crucifixion as a baptism. Why did he call it this? Well, because similar to the water, very similar to water, the wrath of God would be poured out upon him and he would drink it to its dregs for the sake of his people. And that's why God the Father was well pleased with Jesus the Son when he went to John the Baptist to be baptized because his baptism at the Jordan River was pointing forward to his baptism at the cross. And it displayed Jesus' willingness to experience that baptismal ordeal that he would face in his crucifixion. Jesus' baptismal cross experience, you see, was a trial ordeal that he victoriously passed through so that we too might have a favorable verdict. His favorable verdict, beloved, is our favorable verdict if we are united to him by faith. Jesus you see, was vindicated from the baptismal cross ordeal when he was raised from the grave. By his death and resurrection, he defeated our enemies, sin and Satan and death. And scripture paints this as a combat experience. Jesus' trial ordeal was also a combat experience against Satan, the ancient dragon. And we saw this a few weeks ago. As we discussed Revelation chapter 12. But we also see this in Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 for example. Which says. Having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he that is God the father. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame By triumphing over them in him, in Christ. You see, God defeated these enemies through Christ. He disarmed them and triumphed over them through Christ, the divine warrior. Think again of Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10. Was it not you, O God, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon, who dried up the sea and made a way for the redeemed to pass over. You see, the exodus 
experience, beloved, prefigured. It prefigured. It was a type, a shadow, a prefiguring of what Christ would come to do in his work. Jesus' trial ordeal was a combat experience against Rahab, the ancient dragon, against the serpent, the devil. At the cross, through suffering and death, through the wrath of God being poured out upon him, of which he drank to its dregs, through that ordeal, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, namely Satan, the ancient serpent, and all his demons, all who follow him. Beloved, the cross was a trial ordeal for Jesus. He fought against the devil, not by an actual sword, of course, but by suffering unto death. He defeated our enemies. Christ gained victory at the cross and his resurrection from the, de- the, from the dead declared that victory. Over the forces of darkness. Satan the accuser and those aligned with him brought charges against Christ. He was accused of blasphemy. And ultimately of not being the son of God. And at the cross he entered into combat. A combat ordeal against his accusers. His resurrection From the grave then was a vindication from that ordeal. We might call it a favorable verdict of justification. He went to battle against his and our foes. And it's symbolized in scripture as a combat ordeal. Though it looked like he was defeated. He was actually the victor every step along the way. He defeated and conquered his enemies by suffering the wrath of God and dying our death. And his resurrection from the grave demonstrated that he was indeed the victor in this battle. Now here's the point. If Christ was victorious in the baptismal ordeal that he endured on your behalf then you who are in Christ can be assured that you too will receive a favorable verdict. Your sin was laid upon him at the cross. And he bore the punishment that you deserved. If you are in Christ by spirit wrought faith, then he took your sin away. Nailing it to the cross and disarming your enemies. There is no doubt that you will receive a favorable verdict in Christ. Because in Christ you have been justified. How can you be sure? Just look to his resurrection for assurance. Romans 4.25 says, He, that is Christ, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. His justification is your justification. 
not that he was justified from any sin he committed, but nevertheless vindicated of all that he was accused, and his vindication is your vindication or your justification. Your Savior's victory against the accusers assures you, beloved, of a favorable verdict. You see, the second Exodus experience that Isaiah was prophesying about in this 43rd chapter was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. At this time, beloved, we may be sojourners in the wilderness of this world, or as Peter calls it, calls us, elect exiles, so we may be at this time. But Christ has provided us with redemption and a way of escape from Satan, sin, and final death. And all of this has implications for your baptism. We are not to divorce all of this rich background from the meaning of New Testament baptism. Think again of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he calls Israel's passing through the Red Sea a baptism that they experienced. He says that these things took place as examples for us. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that like Israel, we are on a trek through the wilderness unto the promised land. Not a literal wilderness that will lead us to Palestine in the promised land of the Old Testament. No, this world, beloved, this world is metaphorically the wilderness. And our trek through this world will lead us to heaven if by faith we follow Christ. But just as Israel began that trek by being baptized in the Red Sea, so also our trek begins with baptism, New Covenant baptism. And what you need to understand is that this trek through the wilderness of this world is sort of a trial by ordeal that will culminate in judgment before the throne of God. In your baptism, beloved, is Christ's invitation to you to enter this trial ordeal with him. So that in your identification with him by faith, you might be assured a safe passage through this trek and a favorable verdict on judgment day. In other words, your baptism, O believer, is the promise of Isaiah 43, 1 through 2, which I will read again. Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 
You see, beloved, baptism symbolizes many, many things. And I hope you see that your baptism is a sign and seal of your Savior's promise to be with you in the midst of this trial ordeal of the Christian walk. And which culminates in judgment before the throne of God on the final day. And beloved, you can be assured of that promise, the promise that God gives us in this passage, because he has already undergone this trial and won the battle for you himself. There is now nothing to fear for those who are in Christ. If I could piggyback for just a moment on Reverend Ansel's sermon last week. He mentioned this verse in the sermon on contentment, if you remember. And I would add to it that it's our trials in life that often make us, or that we allow to make us, discontent. But if, beloved, our contentment is truly in God, if our chief end is truly to glorify and to enjoy God forever, then should we not be truly content in any situation so long as God himself is with us? And that's the promise you're given in this verse. In Isaiah 43, verse 2. It is a promise that still stands for us today. God is with us. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the same promise. Now, before we close... We must not forget about the outcome of God's enemies, the Egyptians, in those water ordeals. You see, they became immersed in his wrath. They experienced a baptism as well. But in their trial by ordeal, they received a guilty verdict and were condemned. This threat of curse is also symbolized by our Christian baptism. And so we shouldn't just see the promises symbolized in our baptism, but also the warnings that come with it. We should not be like the Egyptians who did not believe in the one true and living God. But nor should we be like the many Israelites, many of whom showed themselves to be idolaters with whom God was angry. Though they had been baptized in the Red Sea, they did not trust in the promises of God and fell away. Therefore, God destroyed them just as he destroyed the Egyptians. Beloved, your baptism warns you of this possible judgment. A judgment which results in what the book of Revelation calls the lake of fire. Being immersed in the lake of fire. 
of fire. Which brings the elements of water and fire together, doesn't it? It's a lake, but it's a lake of fire. Which, you see, this is where Satan and all who follow him will be cast for eternity. Therefore, warning you of this possible outcome, your baptism, beloved, summons you to look by faith to Jesus, the divine warrior who has already won the victory and received a favorable verdict and in so doing has provided a way of safe passage for you to enter into heaven without being overwhelmed or consumed by the fires of his wrath. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he accomplished. We thank you that he was willing to undergo the very experience that we deserve, namely the experience of your wrath being poured out upon him. So that we might be saved. Oh Lord help us. As believers. Not to fear. The things of this world. For we know that death surrounds us. At every moment. Death is all around. It seeks our loved ones. It seeks our own lives. There is suffering and temptation. And troubles all around. But may we heed your exhortation not to fear. Only that we would fear you, O God, that we might not fear anything else. We thank you that you have made us your prized possession by recalling us and redeeming us through the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.